Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. Okay, so Torah portion is Tetzaveh. But I'm just going to look at a tiny little bit of Tetzaveh. I'm going to look at the menorah again because I, I want to augment Thyatira, which is interesting. That's kind of been our working text out of Revelation for the past few weeks. Idolatry is the equivalent of sexual immorality. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things, sacrifice to idols. All right, that's worth remembering. If idolatry can exist among believers today, how do I look for it? I mean, I don't, I doubt they're going to be worshiping a Buddha statue or anything like that. How do I look for it among believers today? Well, she says she's teaching and leading my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality. He's saying sexual immorality is going to be rampant among believers in the time of the footsteps. He says, and they also eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, there's more than one application to that. Could it be literally that you went into a restaurant that had a big Buddha statue and you ate their food? Yeah, it could be that. But I think it's deeper than that. It's going to be a little more foxy in terms of how you're enticed into it. And this sexual immorality often will come through things that you are consuming. You are a consumer, right? The whole thing about Babylon is, is the commercial system. It's, being a, it's driven by consumerism. And what do we consume that's related to sexual immorality? Do we watch movies or television with sexual immorality? Do we take that in and think it's okay? Do we listen to songs about sexual immorality? These are things we need to watch because the more we're exposing ourselves to sexual immorality and the more that we consume such things, the more likely we are to be associating, our, associating ourselves with idols. And he says, I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. You know, it's one thing to be sexually immoral and want to repent. It's another thing entirely. If you're caught up in sexual immorality, you are confronted with it, and you don't want to repent. He says, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with plague. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Okay, he's saying your deeds are important now. If anybody ever told you that your deeds were unimportant after you were saved, this is evidence they are wrong. Deeds are important after you were saved. It's important that that fig ripen in to a full fruit by Shavuot, 
by the time you were confronted again with the covenant, if you can't do it with the smaller things, how will you do it with the bigger things? And then from Shavuot, that blossom of your cluster needs to mature into a full grape of repentance by Sukkot. We live our lives of progressive repentance. This is not a place where it's okay to go backward. Sexual immorality is not a place where it's okay to go backward. It's not to be tolerated. It's to be repented of. It's, uh, in fact, we find the, the verse is true on most of these platforms where you might even see this video. This video might not be suitable for the community guidelines of the platform. Because they want us to tolerate sexual immorality, which is idolatry. They don't want it to be repented of. But sexual immorality goes hand in hand with idolatry. Just like the golden calf at Sinai, just like the seduction of the Midianite women with their meals. What were they eating? Was it just the food? No, it was sexual immorality that they, they became consumers. So if we want to clean up our lives, if, if you say, where is the fox trying to get me right now? Look here. Look right here. Because see, Thyatira, it's the fourth assembly on that menorah. The fourth assembly, it's going to represent the spirit of Adonai, the, the central spirit of Adonai. The other six are specific. Like you're going to have wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, reverence. Those are specific aspects of the Holy Spirit. This is the authority of the Holy Spirit itself. This corresponds to Shavuot in terms of the feast. This is the fourth feast. This is when you have to come face to face and say, we will do and we will hear. We accept the covenant. From here, he's saying, you have to repent. He says, I gave her time to repent. She had from Passover to Shavuot. She had that time to repent. She didn't want to repent. She wants to be saved and continue in her sexual immorality. He says, behold, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. And those who commit it with her, her children, the people who copy what she does, right? So naming Jezebel, that's important because it sets you into the time period of Ahab that we want to investigate next week. It sets you directly into the generation of Ahab, into the generation of Elijah, who called down fire. And, you know, the sages look at Jezebel, and they, they don't call them big fox, little fox. They call her the, uh, they call him the big pumpkin, and they call her the little pumpkin. <laughs> but they fit the paradigm of the big fox and the little fox because of something very specific that Ahab and Jezebel did. What did they do? They murdered their next door neighbor for his vineyard because he wouldn't sell the vineyard. He says, no, I can't sell my vineyard. It's my inheritance from my fathers. What is your inheritance from your fathers? The word, the Torah, the land of Israel, the land of promise a spiritual inheritance, eternal life. This is the inheritance passed on to you by your fathers, by Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah and Rachel. It's They have passed 
this heritage down to you. And this is what Navot says to Ahab. How can I give up my inheritance just because you want to plant a vegetable garden? No, I won't sell my vineyard. And Ahab comes home. He has a tantrum. He souls up. And Jezebel says, what's wrong, honey? He says, I want that vineyard. He won't sell me that vineyard. And she says, oh, I'll take care of it. Because she is a, she is a princess of Sidon. And she has brought her idols with her, her idols of sexual immorality, right? Well, let's see what's going on here. Here's the fox pattern. Now we're going to go to the time of Ahab. Now that we understand what a, a severe penalty is associated with sexual immorality during the footsteps of Messiah. See, it's not, never is there a time to be caught up in sexual immorality, never is there a time. And if you are caught up in sexual immorality, it's time to repent now, stop now. If it's the footsteps of Messiah, more than ever, you need to hear that, stop now, no more, cut it off. Because he says, if you don't, you're gonna fall on the same bed of sickness she's going on. Because you wouldn't repent. Now's not the time, because now great tribulation is coming. You want great tribulation for the sake of a forbidden meal? You would trade this for that? You would trade the kingdom for that? But Ahab's kingdom witnessed this great descent into idolatry. It had already fallen into idolatry under Jeroboam. Ahab, Jeroboam, and Manasseh are the three kings of Israel. They say that we're totally wicked. There's, there was none before or after who would ever be as wicked as those three. And so Ahab, the big pumpkin, or the big fox, and Jezebel, the little pumpkin, the little fox, they preside over this decline into grave idolatry. And, but it's, again, it's in the time of one of the greatest prophets, Elijah who's always associated with Messiah, at least in the return of Messiah, they're falling into this great idolatry during the time of Elijah and Obadiah. So here's the story about the sickbed. It says, 1 Kings 21.1, it says, Now it came about after these things that Navot, which means fruits, not random, fruits. The Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, Beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. The Shomron is actually in Hebrew. Ahab spoke to Nabot saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Nabot said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. He had an inheritance from his fathers. He had a place in the promised land. He had an assignment in the promised land. That assignment in the promised land represents your assignment in the Garden of Eden at the resurrection. That's why the land is so important. It's what it represents. It's a resurrection when you'll get to see the fullness of the land that you can't see today. But Nabot knew it was there. And he says, I cannot give up this inheritance of my father's just because you want something convenient and something close. 
Well, that's what caught Ahab's eye. The, the vineyard was close to his palace. And if he could just convert that into a vegetable garden for his palace, his produce, it would be so much fresher. It wouldn't have to come from so far away. It wouldn't wilt in the heat. The bugs wouldn't be in it. I mean, truly farm to table right here. <laughs> it's not a new concept. He wants the juiciest fruit, the sweetest fruit, the crispest fruit, the brightest fruit. He wants it close. Well, that should sound familiar. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. He's right there with her. It's a sin of convenience. They're right there. We're not told they put the fruit in a basket, and then they made this long trek. They went out to the Pishon River and, and you know, made a picnic out there. No, they just grabbed it and ate it. She hands it to him. He eats it. And so these human beings, they're in the, you know, tender blossom stage. And then they're just plucked clean by another beast of the field, by the serpent, who's also a wise, just like the fox. He's wise. He's cunning. He wants territory. And what did this threaten? The, you know, the human beings are in the garden. They're ruling the garden. It's threatening the serpent's place. He wants to be a king. He wants to rule the garden. He does not want to submit to the rule of the human beings. And if he doesn't want to submit to the rule of the human beings, it means he doesn't want to submit to the rule of the one who made them, to Elohim. And what do they do? They fall right straight into it. It's a sin of convenience under a green tree. And so what's going to happen? This sickbed they're about to be thrown onto, this mortality that they're thrown into, their children are going to fall into it with them because they also are going to eat under these green trees. And this is why it's so important, Deuteronomy 12, 2, or caution, that we should not be worshiping under every green tree. We shouldn't be worshiping on every high hill, on every mountain. That's a metaphor for worship of convenience. And it's not always worshiping a foreign god, by the way. They say that in the time of... Uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat, where scripture says they, you know, they, they couldn't get rid of all the, the places that people were worshiping. They, they did a lot of reform, religious reform, getting rid of a lot of idolatry, but there are still places they just couldn't stamp out. And they said these were the places. They weren't worshiping foreign gods. They, they were just worshiping the God of Israel in a convenient place rather than going up to Jerusalem. And they were afraid that should they stamp out these places, they would completely disconnect people from Elohim. I don't know. Don't want a Monday morning quarterback on that one. At any rate, the trees are often metaphors of human beings in scripture. Remember the first use or the first appearance of the name of Haman from the book of Esther? It's in the word play back in Genesis where he's asking, did you eat from, you know, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? If you read that in Hebrew and translate it out literally, without the vowels, it says Haman the tree. He appeared to have a desirable form of life in him, but it was death. 
to eat it. It appeared to be green. It appeared to be life. It was a delight to the eyes. It was convenient. It tasted good. It was beautiful. It's going to make them smarter, going to make them just like Elohim. Well, you know, that's what that's what drives consumerism. Talking about being consumers, you know, this is what sexual immorality is. It's, you know, the penultimate consumer. Even today, we're driven by, you know, all these things, you know, all this stuff is out there. It's going to make us be- more beautiful, smarter. It's going to taste better. It's going to be easier. We're going to be admired. We won't have to work so hard. That's what the commercial system offers us. That's the bait. It's all these things of a convenient tree. Well, what did Ahab want? He wanted a convenient garden. He wanted these convenient green things. In fact, that he wanted a green garden. If you read it in Hebrew, that's what he wanted. He wanted a green garden. Well, the first sin was under a green tree. The idolatry of Israel was under green trees because it offered everything that was delightful, or so they thought. What's troubling today, even today, the secular government of Israel, it's destroying the vineyards in Samaria. It's called Shomron and Judea. They are still going in there and destroying those vineyards based on political agreements, not based on the covenant, not based on we will do and we will hear based on political agreements with foreign countries. Why did Ahab marry Jezebel? It was a commercial agreement with Sidon, the primary shipping kingdom on earth. If you destroyed Sidon's ships, you destroyed them. They went around the world. There's even Phoenician writing on these rocks here in Kentucky. It was an ancient civilization based on commercial shipping. And so Ahab forms this alliance, just like Solomon with Egypt. Ahab forms this alliance with Sidon, but what does he do? He brings in a priestess of Baal. And so with this commercial, with this consumerism, comes idolatry. Idolatry is what comes with the commercial eventually. So we've got a fox, Ahab. We've got a little fox, Jezebel. And they can be the enemy within, just like the enemy was within the garden. Well, Ahab and Jezebel, they were the foxes within Israel. Why? Because Ahab makes a commercial alliance called a marriage so that he can benefit from this shipping industry. We'll always be suspicious of what has to come with a free product because it wasn't free at all. With it comes an addiction. With it comes sexual immorality. With it comes compromise. With it comes an inability to hear the words of Elijah and Obadiah. And with it comes a teaching of immorality that says it's okay. You can have your religion of convenience. We look at Revelation, it talks about how a third of the trees are going to be burned up. You know, trees have always been a metaphor for human beings in scripture. It sounds like the idolatry is so severe. Again, where did idolatry occur symbolically? Under every green tree. 
Everybody wants to be God. Everybody wants to run their own lives. This is what I have to do for me. You know, it's, it's all about me. But the word says it's all about him. It's a matter of who you're going to believe. The serpent will tell you it's all about you. Jezebel and Ahab will tell you it's all about you. But the word says it's all about him. And he will give you every good thing. He will give you the green things you need at the proper times and the proper places. But that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's first instruction in idolatry. It occurs under a green tree. So it doesn't really matter if later they start carving trees into images or metals into images. A tree is an idol in its barest form. If we look at it symbolically, it's going to deliver what you want, what you need, what you want to be, and it'll do it right now. No waiting. It's quick. Just use your credit card. But what is it? It's the same thing Adam and Eve did. They refused to wait for the cool of the evening. They refused to wait for a conversation with Elohim. Why did they refuse to wait? Because they knew that he would not accept their story. He knew that he would say it's still wrong. No matter how you're trying to turn this into we're made in your image and therefore we'll be wise like you, you're not going to fool him and make him accept or believe about you what you have lied to yourself and made yourself believe about you. He's not going to believe anything about us that is inconsistent with his instructions. And if we believe something about ourselves that's inconsistent with his instructions, we are wrong, 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 wrong. And we will always be wrong. So why not just get over ourselves and be right and believe what he says about us? Then we can truly be a green tree, not a tree of idolatry. We can be a tree of righteousness, you know, planted by rivers of living water. We can be like the cedars of Lebanon. We can be part of the temple, right? We can be all the good things about the tree because we behave consistently with the way that he made us, with the instructions he made for us. And so, this political alliance called a marriage, what was really going on here? What was the dynamic? What of Navot did Ahab really want? Well, it goes back to understanding what a vine is. It goes back to understanding that sexual immorality is idolatry. Psalm 128.3 says your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. What did Ahab really want? Did Ahab want a vineyard? Or did he want a sin of convenience? Did he want Nabot's vineyard? Or did he want his wife? Your wife is a fruitful vine within your house. When you want someone else's vine, when you are not happy with your own vine, you're an idol worshiper. You're an Ahab. You're a big pumpkin. pumpkin. <laughs> you're going to need a little pumpkin <laughs> to help you get what you want, but you're a big pumpkin. You're a big fox. 
and you're trying to ruin someone else's vineyard. He has given you your assignment in the land. He has given you the assignment of your fathers, the inheritance of your fathers. And you look at what's convenient. You look at what's close. You say, I want that. Now, was this literally Nabot's wife that Ahab wanted? We're not told. We just know that the, the metaphor is there, that a vineyard is a wife. It can just stand for idolatry. That Ahab's, again, look at everything hanging on Shema Yisrael, whether it's thieving, coveting, committing adultery, not keeping the Sabbath. Oops. <laughs> It, this one probably won't last long on YouTube. Uh, all those things, it's evidence of idolatry. Saying, no, he isn't. He isn't one. He isn't Elohim. You're saying there is something other than him, and that would be me. I'm the tree, right? I deserve that vineyard. I deserve what's not mine. I deserve what he has not given to me. He's put it in a convenient place. I can see it. I can feast my eyes on it. Therefore, I should be able to consume it. And he's got a little helper named Jezebel. She's going to help him. Well, there is no Jezebel without an Ahab. So she's helping him in this respect. Uh, she's enabling him in, his, in this respect. So what's going on in... And the message to Thyatira, this Jezebel woman, she's teaching my servants to eat things offered to idols and to commit sexual immorality. This is exactly what's going on right here with the big fox and the little fox. Jezebel is teaching him because she is a princess of Sidon. She's a priestess of Baal. She's teaching him, you know what? You're the king. You're entitled to anything you want. You know, Adam, it's your garden. You're entitled to eat anything you want. You're God. There's, there's no God who can tell you what to do, right? But there is. There is a Shema Yisrael. That vineyard is not yours. The fruit of that tree is not yours at all. I think we all understand when we say sexual immorality. We're of like kind and like mind, so I don't have to be too specific. If, if we're talking about idolatry in the modern age, where do we find it? Yeah, you might see a Buddha at a restaurant. Um, you might run into something that, that has that Old Testament appearance of an idol. But because idolatry is present all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we have to look around and say, okay, it's something that's going to be very apparent. It's going to be right under my nose. I can't miss it. I just need to figure out what it is I'm looking at. And as we get into the message to Thyatira, it's going to clarify it. What is idolatry? It's sexual immorality. That's explicit. Well, that's kind of a pun. But at any rate, <laughs> explicit literature in the book of Revelation. But it's good. No, we don't have to wonder. We know at least one form of idolatry in our day and age is going to be sexual immorality. And again, just like in any age, idolatry is going to be passed off as the norm. This is what normal people do. This is what everybody's doing. If you're not accepting this, then you're the exception to what's normal. And it's, it's strange how fast normal switched for those of us who have a few wrinkles that, you know, we used a little highlighter under here, but 
were wrinkly, right? So how fast did it change? That, that at first, these are the people who tried to hide from the norm, and now it's just the opposite. We seem to be the ones who were supposed to be hidden away and not voice what we believe, because then we'll get kicked off of whatever platform. Isn't it interesting we're using platforms to teach the word, but it's also the Bamot, it's the high places where they worship the Baals, right? So we're going to use them for good. We're going to proclaim that message, because if you notice, both the righteous woman, the wisdom of the Spirit, and the harlot in the book of Proverbs, they're sitting in the same places. They're calling to the same people. It, but if you don't know the word, you don't know the difference. So let's progress. Um, and the, the little bit of text I wanted to work with from Tetzaveh is Exodus 27, 20. It says, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure, beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aharon and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. And of course, if you've done Creation Gospel 1, you know that this seven-branch menorah that it's referring to refers to specifically the seven spirits of Adonai. They're listed in Isaiah. They're also, um, it tells you that's what that is in the book of Revelation. But in the book of Revelation, we're also told that this represents the seven assemblies. You say, well, which one is it? Yes. If the spirit is in the seven assemblies, then the answer is yes. And of course, Yeshua is the one who walks in the middle, in the midst of the lampstand. Uh, And therefore, all authority is given to him. If he needs to trim our lamps, then he can trim our lamps. We want to be prepared for that. Uh, so Revelation 1.20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers, the angels of the seven assemblies, and the seven lampstands are the seven assemblies. Now, did John ever go to First Baptist on Main Street? Never sit foot in a church as we know it and understand everything we know about going to church. John knew nothing of that. John went to synagogues and he went to the temple on for the feasts. He went to the temple to pray. But our context for church is so far outside of what John would have seen. He's talking about assemblies. The only assemblies that John knows of, of course, are going to be those on Shabbat and those on the high Sabbath that occur at the feasts. And so the seven assemblies of Adonai should still, should still be characterized by their assembly upon the Sabbath and the high Sabbath of the feast. That's what defines them in the book of Revelation. And even then, they're in jeopardy. Wow. People that walk like us and talk like us and say Yeshua and Torah and tzitzit, you mean they could risk having their lampstands removed? Even more so. Even more so. Because they know things that most of the world doesn't know. And that's a high calling. It's a high responsibility. So let's go back 
again, this is the defining verse, really, for how we named the ministry of the creation gospel. But in Nahum 1.15, it's going to associate the feasts with the good news. But as we go from here, we want to go in a little bit more of a prophetic vein. So as we look at this, it says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Now, right there, there's a little bit of dissonance for us because as we look around, we see anything but peace outside the walls of this particular assembly on this particular day. If we go out there in the world and turn on a radio, if we turn on a television, if we walk into a movie house, if we even go into Walmart, do you feel like your peace might be snatched from you pretty quickly? Yeah. But he's saying, this is an announcement of peace. The announcement of peace and the good news is associated again with something particular. The assemblies of Adonai are associated with the feast, with the Sabbath in Revelation. That's why the big number's seven, not 666. Okay, why don't we focus on <laughs> one number when everything is about the seven? Because there's that mysterious element. It must be somebody else, right? It says, celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. This is when you paid your vows, was at the three pilgrimage feasts. So he's linking, so you won't misunderstand which feasts he's talking about when he says, pay your vows. If you're Jewish, you understand he's talking about Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. You could pay them in between, but you didn't usually make a special trip. You paid them while you were there. What is linked with this? If you will keep the feasts, if you will pay your vows to Adonai, how many of you consider yourself in covenant with him? And therefore, you should pay your vow to him. Just like in a marriage, if, if you don't pay your vows, you're on the road to divorce pretty fast. Right? You can't add another to the relationship. He says, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. Now, if we want to cut off the wicked one, that process is linked to celebrating the feasts, Judah being given the scepter saying, you go first because the rest of them are going to lose it. They're going to lose it for thousands of years, actually. But Judah will not lose it. They will never completely lose their identity. They will come out of exile and they will be more coalesced than ever before. So one thing they're never going to lose is going to be the feasts and the Sabbaths. And that's going to be a banner, you know, where those who have to return, who did lose it, they can rally back around that banner. When that happens, then it's going to cut off the wicked one, and he knows it. He knows his time is short because he sees us sitting here on Shabbat, not out there, what he says, if you will keep your foot <laughs> from setting it down in every place for your own pleasure on the Sabbath. Uh, if you will call my day a delight. See, this is a delight. Would you agree, even if you're miserable right now, just say it's a delight. <laughs> if it's too hot, it's still a delightful too hot, right? But this is good news. While the world falls into tribulation, and we're here, folks, and we didn't get raptured out. I hate to burst that bubble. But as the world is descending into chaos, into darkness, into wickedness, the good news is at the very same time being proclaimed. So it's up to you what your ear receptors hear. 
do you hear trouble, tribulation, conspiracy, all this horrible stuff? Or in the midst of all of that, are you hearing the footsteps of Messiah on the mountain? Do you hear him coming, proclaiming good news? And you know the good news has come because you understand his Sabbath. It is a delight, and it has been a delight since the seventh day of creation. Nothing changed. He's still Elohim. He's still the king of the universe. And we're proclaiming that today. We proclaim it on the high Sabbaths. This is why the adversary knows when his time is short. How else will he know? He will see this right here, and he will know the footsteps of Messiah are coming. Uh, I don't know if we talked about it last time I was here, but the rabbis predicted a worldwide plague in that Shemitah year just before the seven years of the footsteps. What the world calls tribulation, we call footsteps. So could this be the generation? But you notice in this long negotiation, we always go back to the, the proto-prophecies of Torah. We don't start reading Ezekiel until we read Exodus. Please, okay, don't go to a prophecy conference where they're not teaching the first five books. It's not a prophecy conference. It's a guessing confab. I don't know what it is. That is not a prophecy conference. Prophecy, the proto-prophecies begin in the Torah, and actually in the first week of creation, you have the proto-prophecies of even the rest of the Torah. In fact, even prophecies of what will happen later in the creation week. We're talking about the trees, the vision of the trees. She saw the trees. She knew the trees were people. The trees are created on the third day. Human beings are created on the sixth day. So the trees on the third day were the prophecy of the human beings on the sixth day. Talk about a telescope. It's wild. But let's go back to Pharaoh. The negotiation, because remember, the, the birth of a nation began with a new calendar. They, they knew it was time to go out of there because Moses says, this shall be the beginning of the months for you. When you receive a new calendar, you know your exodus has begun. It's in process. You should be able to hear the footsteps at that point. But the negotiation, if you follow it carefully between Moses and Pharaoh, it was because Moses repeatedly kept asking Pharaoh, you need to let us go celebrate a Chag in the wilderness. You need to go let us celebrate a Chag. And it would go back and forth. Well, you know, these can go, but these can't go. Well, that, those and that can go, but no, these can't go. And Moses says, no, we're all going, even our livestock, even our little dogs. <laughs> we're taking everything because we don't know what's going to be required of us when we get out there. Do you see how the original negotiation with the serpent, and I'm glad I did the Beast Kingdom last time I was here, I don't have to do that again. Do you see how the original negotiation with the serpent had to do with the feast? And does it make sense now why the serpent, why the dragon, why the adversary, why the beast, because remember he passes his authority off to the Beast Kingdom. Do you see now why they know their time is short? They can see exactly what Moses was asking for. He's asking for permission, let them go celebrate the feast. Pharaoh says no. Well, we didn't ask permission, we just did. So he knows his time is short. Here's the thing, that the feasts are the key to breaking the power of the adversary. And they can't be fake feasts. It can't be on the outside, but you're still rotten on the inside. You know, just because you like to dance is no excuse to come to a feast. Just because you like to blow the shofar, that's harsh. But... That's no reason to come to a feast. Just because you like to dress up in Jewish clothes is no reason to come to a feast. And they would agree with me. It has to come from the inside of the tree to the outside. 
And that's what the feasts do. They help to transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we didn't understand everything at first, and maybe it did feel a little fake. Did your first Passover feel just a little bit fake? Because you didn't understand exactly what you were doing? Like, am I just playing here? Am I just playing Jewish? But then over the years and over time, as you internalized and understood more about it, you realized it wasn't fake at all. That was the realest Jew that ever was, right? Just like your first Shabbat. It felt a little awkward, like shoes that didn't fit. Well, you had to break them in, right? Those shoes fit you. You just had to walk in them a while. And now you wouldn't take those shoes off or anything. You got your favorite pair? (laughs) Well, you know what? You need to have those on at Passover because you don't know how long you'll be walking. (laughs) Those fees are the key to breaking the power of the adversary. Pharaoh knows this. That's why he's negotiating. What we know that the beast controls, if we take it back to Egypt, which was the serpent kingdom, of course, Pharaoh's the crocodile of the Nile, we know that there was a particular custom associated with Egypt that the Hebrews missed. When they left Egypt and they got out into the wilderness, there was something about Egypt they missed. Remember, they had to wait for the manna to fall every day. They couldn't stock up. They couldn't prep. It was going to fall that morning. They were going to collect it before it dissolved. They were going to process it. They were going to eat it. And then they did the same thing the next day, except on the sixth day, they would get double. In fact, one of the texts implies that they didn't really get double. They picked up the same amount, and it doubled itself as they processed it, which would be really cool, right? That would be kind of an Elijah sort of thing going on. But as human beings, we want to stock up. We want to know what's ahead. We want to be prepared for what's ahead. He says, that's not the way I want to get to know you. I want you to depend upon me for daily bread. Back in Egypt, it said that they could control the irrigation gates with their, with their foot. And this is, again, this is how the serpent controlled the waterways, your sustenance. He wants to control the waterways of your sustenance, where your food comes from, the seasons that it grows. He wants to grow, and the foot is going to be the symbol of that. Now, does anybody remember what the last beast kingdom, the final hurrah of the last beast kingdom, where it occurs? What part of the human anatomy? In your feet, right there. Because from ancient times, that's what it's represented. If you can control the waterways, then you can control the food supply. You can control commerce. If even you looked at the United States and you went all the way back to where there were only indigenous peoples, Native Americans, Indians, (laughs) I don't know what we're supposed to call them anymore, (laughs) or us, I don't know, I'm half that, whatever it is. Their, their civilizations, they would grow up along rivers and streams, and they traveled along rivers and streams like interstate highways. That's where their pathways were. That's where their warrior paths were. But they were also commercial paths. And so you might find things that should be in Florida. You might find them all the way up in Canada because it was commercial trade. The waterways represent commercial trade. So as we get into the book of Revelation... And it talks about a third of the trees being burned up. Well, we know trees represent people. And then it mentions a third of the ships being destroyed. You have read that story before. And I'm going to show you exactly where you read that story before. 
but it represents a third of commercial trade being absolutely destroyed. You wouldn't have to destroy a third to destroy the world's economy. It's barely been nicked at this point. And what are we looking like? A year to get a refrigerator? A used car selling 10000 above its actual value? You go in the grocery store, it might be there, it might not. I'm not sure what you guys have down here, but it's unpredictable. You can't predict what will or won't be there. And everything I'm reading from The Economist say it's, <laughs> this is the beginning of the nosedive. It's going to get worse. So the things we're used to receiving, being able to buy easily to order and to get it pretty fast, that may not be the case a year from now. It might get harder and harder. Well, who controls the waterways at this point? Again, the serpent passed off his authority to the beast. And remember, the woman sits on many waters. So your commercial trade is absolutely woven in to all these systems of the beast. But what comes on these waterways? If we take it again back to Egypt, Pharaoh controlled not the flooding. They believed he controlled the flooding of the Nile. He really didn't. But he did control what happened after that. Because remember, under Joseph, ironically, Pharaoh ended up owning everything. And so in terms of the crops that you grew, how much of it you could keep, the taxes and so forth, taxes should sound very familiar, he controlled that because he controlled the waterways. And so the irrigation kind of represents that flow in and out of water that's going to make the crops grow. The footsteps of Messiah, I'm not going to call it the tribulation anymore. If you want to, go ahead. <laughs> there might be trouble, but I'm not tribulated. I hear footsteps. You tell me something bad, I'm going to say that's a footstep. He's coming. So these footsteps, they're going to destroy these systems that are controlling the waterways. The things that, that symbolize our commercial trade. The wickedness of the world is bound up in these trade agreements, guys. It's not so much military, although I think we're about to see a military action. It's not so much military, but look at all these treaties. They're based on commerce, if the beast can control the flow of commerce, he believes he can control the world. I believe if we can take control of the feasts of Adonai and proclaim to the world that these are still to be observed, then we can open the waterways. And if people don't want to return to the feast, then that commercial activity can just shipwreck. Look at Jonah. How far are you going to run? Really, where are you going to go? Uh, but again, just think about worldwide how much of our economy rests on something as shaky as commercial trade agreements. A little bit of imbalance, and that ship's going to sink. It's already sinking, by the way. Next week, Bizrat uh, Hashem will we'll talk about the Herodian dynasty, their pattern. Go back to Yehoshaphat, um, Ahaziah. Look at some patterns there. And again, hopefully we'll have some things we can identify in our generation and say, who are these foxes? And what would I expect them to do? How do they work? How do they attack? It's going to be subtle. And, and that seems to be the one of the patterns of the fox is he has the ability sometimes to talk you into doing it yourself. He doesn't do it to you. He talks you into doing it 
yourself and sabotaging yourself, just like Adam and Eve, the serpent talked them into sabotaging themselves. What seduced the, the Israelites into staying in Egypt too long? After the, the drought was over, they should have gone back home. Somehow they got talked into sabotaging themselves and staying too long, and then they fell prey to the fox. We can stay too long in the places where we shouldn't be, that we're supposed to be temporary. And all of a sudden, we camp out and want to live there. And in the long run, you might fall prey to the fox. Uh, but next week, I want to get into the, the details with Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, his wife Herodias, their relationship with Yeshua, with John the Baptist. And then I want to circle back to another little fox, which is going to be Ahab and Jezebel's son. Achaziah, and some specific things that he does that might help us understand why the two witnesses in Revelation are calling down fire. And again, we want to recognize the foxes in our generation. What are they doing? They're observing us. Number one, they're watching. They're accumulating data, we might say. And it's a matter of using that information uh, to control us. They're not necessarily trying to kill us. Uh, that's not what Pharaoh wanted to do. It was the baby boys that he wanted to kill. It was the fruit. It was the offspring. If we use that as a metaphor, the fruits of repentance. Well, you know what? The more the world tries to prevent us from repenting, according to the word, and say, that's not really a standard. That's outdated. That's ancient. You know, don't go back under the law. Don't start repenting of sins that, you know, they're not really sins because you don't really have to keep that Torah. Don't believe that. Number one, don't believe that. Understand the role of the Torah in your life. And if people are observing you and accumulating data, that's fine. They're going to fall into their own trap. You just keep producing fruit. You keep producing fruit because a deliverer is coming. The footsteps, I think, are already being heard because we can hear the sound of Passover, because we can hear the sound of Shavuot, because we can hear the sound of Sukkot, because we can hear the call to repentance, and because we can hear the call to maturity in our faith so that we can present ourselves before him at these feasts, having matured from little fig buds from having matured from little grape blossoms, from having survived the pruning and done the repentance that we needed to do. Where do I start repenting? Start with sexual immorality. Start there. I think these prophecies are telling us that that's going to be the, the great idolatry of the generation of the footsteps. So many things are yoked to sexual immorality. You know, it doesn't matter what the ad is for. If it's for perfume, it's going to have sexual immorality in it. They're finding ways to put it everywhere, even with kids. You know, kids today, they, they look like, you see a seven-year-old and it looks like a 20-year-old. You know, seven-year-olds know things that maybe 20-year-olds just found out two generations ago. Uh, they're, they're imposing a sexuality upon young children. 
And it's hard to get away from. It's hard to protect your children. You, know, you protect them anyway. You protect their eyes. You protect their ears. You protect the things that they are consuming. You protect their video games. If they have video games, you protect their books. You protect their music. Don't let them eat things offered to idols. And if, if there's mistakes, the world's not over. If there's mistakes, there's repentance. You know, and teach your children that. If you make a mistake, it's highly likely they will if they use the internet. I mean, they've got to use the internet anymore just to go to school. Are they going to make mistakes? Are they going to run into things? You bet. You teach them the message to the assembly of Thyatira. You'll have time to repent, but make sure you do it. Make sure you do it. Don't tell yourself that this can go on indefinitely and it'll be okay. That, that I can practice my faith and I can also practice sexual immorality because people tolerate it nowadays, right? No. The only person, the only entity that you were concerned about should be the one who created you. Will he tolerate your sexual immorality? No, he will not. It's, it's better to deal with it now than in the days ahead. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.